Thank you. Let's turn to Romans chapter 16. We are in the last chapter of Romans. And Lord willing, this will be the last message in this series, but I trust that um, the things that we have learned and the way that the, the Holy Spirit has uh, challenged our minds to think, that these things remain with us for a very, very long time. Um, this book is so foundational to an understanding of the gospel. And not only is it foundational to understand the gospel, but it shows us uh, some very specific, and it gives us some very specific um, teaching on how we live as Christians. And we are in this practical part, this uh, application. Chapter 16 is a difficult chapter, I think, to preach on if we look at preaching in its, in its normal, um, in its, like, when you have a doctrinal passage like Romans chapter 3, everything is laid out there in order, intentionally organized. What we have here is a final greeting, a long, rambling um, acknowledgement of the saints, some final instructions, and a doxology. I, I do want to cover it all in one message, and I want to cover it in a very short time. And I think, if you guys pray really hard, we can do this. Uh, but I, I, there's a reason I want to keep it going, because uh, there, I think there are at least five very precious um, exhortations or encouragements that we can take from this. This is really part two of last week's message, which was Paul's final encouragement to the Roman church. So this is part two of that. I've got five points. We're just going to go through them. Um, and I will just uh, remind you that when we look at Scripture, there are sort of two ways of learning. There, is, uh, there are things that are taught very clearly lie, uh, laid out. Those are didactic passages. They're teaching passages. And then there are truths that are caught. That uh, you, it isn't an explicit teaching, but when you read it, you can see there is an application there for me. And this passage, even though it's easy to skip over it because it looks like a long list of names, there is so much to learn from it. So let's begin. Um, and I'm not going to read the whole thing at once. I'm going to uh, just read a little bit at a time and comment as we go through. All right, verse, chapter 16, verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centria, that you may welcome her in the Lord as in a, word, a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. So the situation here is Paul is about to send this letter off to the Romans. And he is um, using Phoebe as a courier. She is a servant or a deacon in the church at Centria. And I think I don't have any problem with considering Phoebe, this woman, to be a deacon or a deaconess in the church. Um, and if you look through this whole passage, there are many women who are workers or servants in the church. Um, uh, the, the word deacon simply implies, and it literally is taken from the Greek word, uh, um, which, which is servant. So, Paul's instruction, first of all, and I'm going to include Phoebe in this and all the names that follow, 
is to welcome the saints. That seems like a very basic thing. When we come into the church, the first thing we do is welcome one another. But it can become a very easy habit to welcome people that you're comfortable with and kind of neglect some of the other saints. Especially if someone comes from way out in the boondocks and ends up in this big city of Rome and brings this letter. Who is she? Oh, look at she got her. She's named Phoebe. She's named after some Greek or uh, Roman pagan deity. You know, it's easy to brush people off. But look how Paul says to welcome her. Welcome her in the Lord, in the way worthy of the saints. How would how would we welcome someone in a way worthy of the saints? First of all, what is a saint? A saint is a sanctified one, a holy one. Someone who has been called and set apart by God. A saint is a person who is positionally in a place of honor before God because God has chosen them and God has called them and God has saved them. That's positional sanctification. But a saint is also someone who is being perfected and being conformed and transformed into the image of Jesus Christ and who is learning obedience as they go. How should we welcome a person like that? We should welcome them in a way worthy of saints. We should welcome them in such a way that we understand that we are all on the same journey if we are believing in Jesus Christ. So it says to welcome the saints. And if you look, go through this long list, that same spirit of welcome is extended on, on behalf of Paul. He's saying, greet these people in my name. Extend that same kind of hospitality. Treat them as saints. Acknowledge them. Pass my love. Pass my greetings along to them. You know, the Apostle Paul, he was not only a great preacher, but he was a great relator. And all of these people were friendships that he had established along the way. And for some reason, they tended to end up in Rome. So this concept of welcoming Phoebe, and then by extension, extension wel- welcoming other saints who come to join us, it is something that is so basic, yet it can be very, very easily abused. Um, I want to, to show you how it can be abused in 3 John. Now that's, the, I think it's the shortest book in the New Testament. Maybe Philemon's pretty close. Uh, 3 John is only a page long, not even. But it has to do with a situation that had come up in one of the churches where John was an elder. And I would like you just to uh, look with me briefly. You can listen if you if you uh, don't want to take the time to turn, but 1 John chapter, well, there's only one chapter. Um, And we're going to look at um, verse 9. I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. That's against the apostles, against the... the, uh, those that have been chosen by God to establish a church. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those 
who want to and puts them out of the church. So not only does he not welcome brothers, not only does he welcome not welcome the saints, those who have been baptized and have a, uh, a testimony of faith in Jesus Christ, but if other people want to welcome them, he uses his political clout to, to clobber them right out of the church. Um, that seems like an ex- he seems like a very bad man. But let's just examine our hearts. Because obedience to Christ and living as a Christian is a, a matter not only of what we do outwardly, but what we do inwardly. And how we think of one another. Welcome to the saints. And if you look at this long list of names, and we will, we will read through here in a bit, but you will notice that there are many kinds of names. There are Greek names. There are Jewish names. There are names that seem to be names of nobility. There are people who uh, are in, the house, or in royal households, and yet there are people like Tertius and Corvus, third and fourth, probably slaves or of a, of a very lowly birth. Uh, there are people who are in prison in this address. There are people who are um, actually rich enough and wealthy enough to have churches meeting in their homes. This is a cosmopolitan, um, wide-ranging, diverse body. Something like uh, Gospel of Grace Fellowship. Now, let's... Uh, Let's take a look at Galatians, and what I want to, what I want us to look at here is just I'm still working on this idea of welcoming the saints, is just the fact that in God's eyes, in God's eyes, there there aren't all of these categories that we tend to make. In God's eyes, because we are all baptized into one Spirit, He doesn't see male and female. He doesn't see Jew and Gentile. He doesn't say see slave and free. He sees one body made up of people that are all important to him. It doesn't mean that we don't have different roles, but it means that we all have honor in his sight. So let's look very briefly then at Galatians chapter 3 verses uh, 23 to 29. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came. Now, Paul is speaking as a Jewish man here. The law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Now listen to this, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. We all, you know, it's not like we're all trying to flaunt our colors and and our our unique style, and uh, we're trying to be different from everyone else, and we're trying to show how unique and wonderful we are. We've all put on Christ. There is a uniform, unifying reality 
though we may look very different on the outside, there is uh, this idea that we have all put on Christ. We all share in his likeness. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now these truths are echoed in the book of Romans. We've been through them in some detail in Romans chapter 2, 3, 4, 11, 12, and so on. But they, these are wonderful, this is a wonderful truth that our uh, welcome and our treatment of one another comes from the realization that we are one in Christ and that we are all Abraham's offspring. All right, now, this uh, second point here, it's, this is one that's caught. It's one, one that's caught. It's not clearly, directly taught here, but if we go through this next long section, we're going to see a verb that occurs, and or a noun, depending on how it's used. It's used over and over again, and you get this overall sense that this is a group of people who work. It's a group of people who are working in the church. Now we've looked at the passage in Romans chapter 12 where each, each person has a different gift. And when you have a gift and you're within the body, you have a job to do. And we're not working in any way for our salvation. But we're working because Christ is our Lord and because as his children, um, he has given us God-glorifying work to do. So listen, and, and uh, I'll just, uh, whenever we come through, go come to the word work, I'll just draw it to our attention in these next few verses. It says, Greet Priscilla, or Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Now, they were fellow workers in more ways than one. Do you remember when Apostle Paul was in Corinth, he actually became a tent maker. And uh, I believe it was these that were his partners. But they were also workers with him in Jesus Christ, who risked their necks for my life. Now we don't know from Scripture exactly how they risked their necks, but anybody who had close association with the Apostle Paul was at risk. To whom I not only give thanks, but all the churches and the Gentiles give thanks as well. Read also the church in their house. So they're hosting a church now in Rome in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who was the very first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Everybody greet Mary, who has worked hard for us. <laughs> we have our own Mary. Um, maybe it just goes with the name. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Now, I'll just stop a little bit. Um, this, these two, this, these names here, especially the last one, Junia, has caused a lot of discussion and speculation. Andronicus and Junia. Junia is very obviously a feminine name, the way that it's uh, rendered in English here. Uh, some people have argued that it should be Junius, but I don't think they've argued well. Anyway, this was a man and a woman who were in Christ before the Apostle Paul, 
And some translations say we're well known among the apostles. In other words, some, some would interpret it that Junia and, um, what was the first guy? Yeah, Andronicus. That they, were, that they were both considered apostles. Now, I don't think there's any problem with that if we understand apostleship in the sense of those who actually witness the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Many women as well as men witness the resurrection of Christ. These are obviously not apostles to the extent that the, those who are entrusted with uh, writing down scripture and with establishing the church with authority. It's not rendered the same. Um, it would, in any case, they were at least well known to the apostles and they were well known um, among, perhaps, as apostles. It also says that they're his kinsmen, kinsmen uh, so they're Jewish, and they're fe and fellow prisoners. Greet Anthonius, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, and here we have again our fellow worker in Christ, and belo my beloved Stachys. Greet Ap Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Hey, there's another, another Jewish person there. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers, again, workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Um, uh, Vodi Balcom thinks they were twin sisters, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Uh, greet the beloved Persis who has worked hard in the Lord. And, and it go, I think that's the last instance of work there, but then if you go down to the other greetings where Paul is sending greetings, you have Timothy, his fellow worker. So you can see this is an industrious group. People are working, they are working hard, they are working alongside. This is the norm for a church. Um, there is an old man who started a rescue mission, his name is Len Clausen, and my brother Ken worked with him for a while, and he, he used to have a saying or he used to kind of test people with this question. He would say, are you a worker, are you a shirker, or are you a lurker? And if you think about it, everybody fits into one of those categories. Either you're willing to work and, and you're, you're jumping in and you're getting your hands dirty, or you're lurking along the sides hoping that nobody will ask you to do anything, or you know very well you've got something to do and you just find a way not to do it. The church is a working church. Um, everybody has a gift, everyone who is in Christ, everyone who has the Holy Spirit, and everybody is expected to use that gift, um, and empowered as well to use that gift. So that's something that we catch from here. Other things you can, can, can catch just from looking through is just the general terms of endearment that are used, beloved, kinsman, and so on. But um, and you see also that the, that the gospel and the connections that are being made here are very personal connections. This is not some abstract ivory tower thing that's going on here. There, the gospel is spread grassroots, person to person, um, and these people are all encouraging one another in the Lord. Okay, so that's the second point. First one was welcome the saints. That's... I believe, even though it's specifically directed toward Phoebe, we can take to heart. A welcoming church 
is, is a church that uh, reflects well on our Savior who has welcomed us and called us to himself even when we were sinners and rebelling against him. So we've got welcome, we've got the work in the church. Now just uh, kind of to put uh, kind of a nutshell around this concept of working in the church, I want to look briefly at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the last uh, three verses or so. It says this, The sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're all united in that victory, aren't we? Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. <coughs> Whatever we do, serving the body of Christ and serving the cause of evangelism, and as a result of this victory that we have in Jesus through his resurrection, this work is not in vain. There's scriptures in the Old Testament, you know, about keep on casting your bread upon the waters and it will return to you in many days. There's, there's a persistence to the work. And sometimes in a season of drought, it can be very, very discouraging when you see no fruit. But remember, even if you look at nature, we have no control over whether those seeds grow or not. It's God who gives the increase. So, there is encouragement to work in the church. Now, here is a very direct teaching coming up here. And you can't mistake this one. This is one that is repeated in almost every letter in the New Testament. And that is number three. Verse 17, watch out for wolves. Watch out for wolves. The word wolves is not used here, but I think it, it fits very well, and I'll, I'll back that up. It says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ but by, their own, by their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I may rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good, and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So that is a very direct warning, exhortation to watch out for people who would come in and divide you, who would break up and who would, make, who would make that beautiful harmony that we studied in Romans chapter 15, or, yeah, chapter 15, that, that holy harmony that would come out and, and sour that harmony and create divisions and create strife and to cause us to stop listening to one another and cause us to turn against one another. There are a couple of ways... And there are a couple of kinds of wolves. There's, there's the legalist wolf who comes in and says uh, and, and tries to add things to the gospel, add requirements. And they, they will come in 
as it says here, with, with, very, with very smooth words, saying how much more pleasing it is to God when His people are keeping His commandments. Well, we're, we're not saying that we shouldn't be obedient to the Lord. No one ever says that. But, you know, adding these uh, rituals, for example, in the, in the, the uh, New Testament days, it was circumcision. But adding extra things on or bringing the whole weight of the law to bear upon people like the Gentiles, for example, who had never been under that law. So that's one example. But then there is the, the other, the licentious or the antinomian, those that are completely opposed to the law and who would use some of the very arguments that the Apostle Paul has refuted in this book of Romans. What then? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? There are people that say, well, grace, if it's all God's undeserved favor, and if I had nothing to do with it, then I might as well just keep sinning because it makes God's grace look all the greater. And there are people who actually think that way. Um, so that's sort of the two main things. It can cause you to uh, think that you are saving yourself through good works. Or they can cause you to think that the grace of God is basically one um, free-for-all permission to do whatever you want with your life. And when you have a right concept of the Lordship of Christ knowing who Christ is and knowing that he has called you, that his Holy Spirit enables you to serve him, but that there is a reality of sin, but that reality is something never to be comfortable with, then you can avoid these ditches. But I want to uh, just, using some other scriptures, show you how very passionate the Apostle Paul was in warning about wolves. Acts chapter 20. And verse uh, 29. I think we'll start at 28. <clears throat> I know, uh, verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves, and it's talking to the elders in Ephesus, and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. So this is the responsibility of the elders, and he's going to go start talking about wolves. Okay? Those who are entrusted with spiritual oversight of the congregation, we have a God-given and God-mandated duty to guard the pulpit and to guard the teachers that come in and to, uh, to make sure that we understand the errors and the lies and the smooth talk that is being circulated. This has become a very demanding task in the age of internet communication where people come into our, our homes so much more easily and from so many varied sources. Um, this is why we teach the Word of God verse by verse in context and try to give and to help all of us to have the tools to recognize the error when we see it. 
when, we, when you know how to handle Scripture, then you can see when someone else is mishandling Scripture. You, you can see when they're um, not paying proper attention to the context, or they're not, uh, they're not recognizing other Scriptures that actually shed light on that same passage. When they're just kind of narrowing their focus on one little concept and constructing a false doctrine. So the apostle says, he's, he's speaking to the elders. And by the way, don't think that this is only the responsibility of elders. We all have, we all need to keep our heads up and be, and be aware of what's out there. It says, um, verse 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Notice it doesn't say from outside. They're going to come in from among you. Um, wolves have a way of they, they have a way of making themselves part of a congregation and from among your own selves he's even talking to, to elders here from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them wolves are always self-interested they always have their own agenda in this case in, in, in their passage in Romans it's their own appetite you know they, they want to somehow feed their own need, whether it's their ego, their, uh, their wealth, whatever it is, or, or maybe they're sexual predators. This happens in churches too. Paul is laying out the kind of things that we have to be watchful for in the church. Um, continuing here in verse 30, And among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years... I did not cease day or night to admonish everyone with tears. Now the Apostle Paul obviously had some special revelation here um, so that he could specifically address these elders in Ephesus when he was leading them. We don't have that, that same insight, but I believe this is a valid insight for every church. Because when you see churches going off the rails, it's because... There has been a tolerance and acceptance of false teaching in the church. Um, look at Jesus when he speaks to the churches in the book of Revelation. I have this one thing against you. You tolerate the teachings of the Nicolaitans. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. There is, if, if, there is a, if we relax in this watching out for wolves then we make ourselves very, very vulnerable. Um, he gives them this great assurance here. But I want you to be wise as to what is good. In other words, understand the Word of God. Don't just listen to it on Sunday. Study it. Internalize it. Familiarize, familiarize yourself with the voice of the shepherd. And then no other voice will lure you. No other voice will deceive you. And then he says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So you can see that the source, the source of, of whatever it is, the, the smooth words, etc., these men get their smooth words from the original smooth talker, right? 
Satan was the original smooth talker. He really got Eve uh, verbally seduced into sin in the garden. All right, now, this section on Timothy and Gaius in verses 21 through 23, I'll just read through it. I want to include that with the, the welcome because this is the other way around. Timothy, my fellow work, worker, greets you, so Lucius and Jason and so Sopater and my kins, kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Tertius would be the amanuensis, the kind of the scribe for Paul. Um, we have reason to believe that Paul suffered with problems with his eyes and maybe some other physical ailments, so it was... Uh, someone would write his thoughts down for him. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother, Cordus, greet you. So again, you just have that sense of community and of welcome and of uh, mutual love among the saints. All right. Going to finish. I, I made a mental note to be finished by 5.30, so we're going to do it today. Uh, number four. Another W here. Wait on the Lord. Again, something that is so basic, so simple. We know that we have no strength of our own, but how often do we think that we have to strengthen ourselves? Uh, let's look at verses uh, 25 to 26. Now to him who is able, and by the way, this is a caught one here. This isn't a taught one. This is caught from this passage. Now to him who is able to strengthen you or to establish you, both words work there, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but, ages, but now has been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience to the faith. Now that is a long, uh, a long mouthful and it's not even the end of the sentence. But I'm going to stop there just to see what is really happening. This is a doxology when you hear it. Now to him, it's a, it's a, it's a, a worshipful acknowledgement of truth about God. That's what it is. But there's teaching in here too. There's teaching that can be caught. And if you look at the word strengthen or establish, and then you look at all the according to's that follow that. See, God, Paul is actually saying, you know, remember, like he's saying it, he's, he's worshiping God, but at the same time he's teaching. Remember the one who strengthens you. And remember how he strengthens you. He strengthens you, first of all, as he says here, through my gospel, according to my gospel. And what is Paul's gospel and what makes it different than anyone else's gospel? Well, in its content, it is no different. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and was buried and raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. God had a plan to save sinful man and it involved Christ dying for our sins and rising from the dead. Now that is the gospel. But why does Paul say my gospel? When you share 
the gospel of Jesus Christ with someone. You are not only sharing the gospel. You are sharing your gospel. You are sharing the very personal and very real um, account of the work of God in your life. This is what it is objectively. This is what it has accomplished in me. And if you want to understand Paul's gospel, a really good place to look for that is in Philippians chapter 3. Um, verses 4 through 11. Actually, I have these all written down, so I might as well use what I've done here. It says, Though I myself have every reason, have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Okay, this is the Apostle Paul, given his pre-Christian resume. This is who I was. Circumcised on the eighth day of the prophet of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That is Paul's gospel. All of this other stuff, everything that he had accomplished in life, everything that he had coming to him in terms of human honor, when he met Jesus, it all became dung. It became loss. It became refuse. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. You see, that personal encounter with Christ and knowing that Jesus Christ was indeed his Lord and of yielding himself in obedience to him and in humble faith, this has changed his life. For this sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That's where that dung word is there. In order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness on my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's that's a very personal gospel. It's a testimony of God changing Paul's thinking, radically transforming him, radically changing his value system so that the things that he used to love and the things that he used to cherish, they don't even matter to him anymore. Jesus changed everything. And it all was through faith in the death of Jesus Christ for his sin. And, and of course the corresponding fact of history of the resurrection of Christ and as Paul says, if by any means possible I might obtain the resurrection. That's his goal, is just to be like Jesus through the power of the gospel. So, number one, according to my gospel and according to the preaching of Jesus Christ. Well, what's the difference? 
what's the difference between my gospel, as the Apostle Paul is saying, which is, I guess he could be mean also, there's a sort of specific gospel for the Gentiles, but there's also the preaching of Jesus Christ. And what I, what I understand this to mean is, it doesn't matter who preaches this message. The preaching of Jesus Christ is a source of strength for the people of God. And when we preach whatever we're preaching, if we're not preaching Jesus, we are neglecting our responsibility in strengthening the saints. Jesus is on every page of Scripture, though not by name. All of Scripture points toward him. Whether you're specifically laying out the, the uh, sort of the skeleton of the gospel or whether you're building around it and, and you're, you're showing all of the building blocks and the, the types and shadows, this hearing about Jesus is going to strengthen and establish the saints. We should never stop talking about him. And the third way that we learn to wait on the Lord here is through the revelation of the mystery. And if you look at, uh, it's right here in the text. Uh, according to the revelation, remember, this is all related to strength. And according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings and made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. Well, what is this mystery the Apostle Paul is talking about? He uses that word in some of his other letters, especially in Ephesians and Corinthians, but he uses it here in Romans chapter 11. And he speaks of it as the mystery of Israel's salvation, but it goes beyond Israel's salvation. It is the salvation of people who were so far excluded uh, from Christ that are, they are brought in with Israel into this covenant. And there is uh, God's overarching plan to redeem for himself people from every tribe and nation. And this would be a great encouragement to the Romans or to the Galatians or to whomever in, in whatever circumstance, in whatever time, in whatever country that God had a plan to save them. Listen to this mystery from Romans 11. The mystery of Israel's, Israel's salvation, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now listen to this. This is a mystery. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. But just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have attained mercy because of their disobedience, so they too now have been disobedient. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing because it, it's I'm running out of time, frankly. But um, when you look at this, God has so carefully orchestrating the salvation of all nations and revealed this mystery now through Jesus Christ who is, has been lifted up from the earth 
and is drawing all people, not every single person, but people from every tribe and nation to himself. This is the revelation of the mystery. No one could understand this if Jesus had not come into the world. Now, if you really want to see where our source of strength is, number one, my gospel, that's Jesus. Number two, the preaching of Jesus Christ, that's Jesus. Number three, the, the revelation of the mystery, that's Jesus, right? All of those are declaring Jesus. All right, now the last, now it's, it's 5.30. I'll only go another minute. The last one here is, again, it's pretty simple, but it's worship God. To the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. To the only wise God, be glory. We're, our, the Lord does not share glory with anyone. The Lord does not give share, share glory with someone who wants to commend themselves or pat themselves onto the back and, and, and say that uh, they have somehow added to what Christ has done for them. Worship God. I think we all understand what that means. In order to close, I want to go back to the beginning. When Paul first opened this letter, he greeted the church and he is, he is ended in a very similar way. So Romans chapter 1. servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now I want you to look at that, that, that phrase, the gospel of God. Everything else after this is describing that gospel, which he promised beforehand through his prophets. Now look at this, uh, in, in what we just read in chapter uh, 16 here, it says that this revelation of this mystery was made known to all according to the command of the eternal God. In other words, this gospel was not an afterthought. This gospel was uh, the, it was given according to the command of the eternal God in eternity past. And the result of this gospel is to bring about the obedience to the faith. That, that is a, a heavy thought. Um, and, and you see here, this gospel in, in chapter 1 he was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, according to his son, or concerning his son, who has descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through him, whom we have received grace and apostleship. And here, here's that same phrase, to bring about the obedience of faith. Um, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of the, his name among all nations. So there in the beginning, you have this command going out in eternity past. And this command is the gospel, which is going to bring about obedience to the faith. And we have the, the book ending here. Uh, in verse uh, 26. But now it has been known and disclosed for the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. 
Uh, the gospel is no accident. It is no afterthought. We have seen that it has a specific target, that it is, that it is uh, given to those for whom the Father, whom the Father foreknew, whom he predestined, whom he called, whom he justified, whom he has glorified, and who he will ultimately glorify. This gospel is, uh, it is indeed the gospel of grace. There is nothing in us that deserves it. And uh, it's just been such a, a privilege to, to kind of mine it out through the book of Romans. So we'll, uh, we'll pray as we close. Father in heaven, I thank you that, uh, that you have left us with abundant witness and testimony and revelation of Jesus Christ. Lord, that he became flesh and dwelt among us. And Lord, as, as though we have never seen his physical glory, he has revealed sufficiently through the pages of Scripture that, that we see his glory. We see through believing. We see through eyes of faith. And Lord, we obey, not according to the, the law of works, but according to the law of faith. Faith that you have placed in our hearts to believe you and to live for you. Faith that is fanned and encouraged and built by your Holy Spirit within us. Faith that we can foster within one another by treating each other um, in, in a way that accords with your word. Lord, we thank you for the precious lessons we've learned. And now I pray that as we move into this, the next part, as we, as we baptize these, these three uh, brother, brothers and sisters, Lord, that you would, uh, God, that your presence and your power would just oversee everything. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so here's what's going to happen. Um, we're going to... Uh, move and assemble ourselves in the fellowship hall. I think you might have time to do a little washroom break in between, but uh, please give, uh, give precedence to the baptismal candidates who want to change into their baptism clothes. And as soon as possible, let's get ourselves seated around the tables in the fellowship hall. Meanwhile, the rest of us will go change and we'll just carry on with the baptismal service from there. All right, we're dismissed.